Hopefully you have your Bibles, and if you will, let's turn in them to Exodus chapter 11. And we will be looking at three portions of Scripture this morning in a message that we have entitled, Hardened. I'd like you to make your way to Exodus 11, Romans 1, and Hebrews 3. But I must warn you before we begin... I feel it necessary to give you one of those warnings that you may see at the beginning of any footage of film that may be objectionable to the viewer. I must warn you that for some of you sitting here today, this church is the most dangerous place that you will sit in. But for others, it is the best place for you to sit in. Well, pastor, how can I know if this is the most dangerous place for me to be? I've never heard that before as I come out to churches. I've never heard those words. Yes, today can be a very dangerous place, and I'm going to warn you up front, it's going to be very dangerous for some of you. But for others, it's going to be the best place that you can possibly be. But pastor, how do I know which one I am? Well, the answer to that question is completely dependent upon you. The answer to that question is completely dependent on you. We find ourselves in Egypt. And nine of the ten judgments of God have taken place. The nation of Egypt has been decimated by what has just occurred. And in the last of the nine judgments, or as we know them to be plagues, darkness has reigned over the nation of Egypt for three days, giving a moment of pause for those who live in Egypt, giving a moment of pause to the one called Pharaoh who has hardened his heart against God. And as he has hardened his heart against God, he has refused the demands of God shared to him, communicated to him through the man Moses. And that command was simple. Let my people go that they may serve me. And Pharaoh resisted over and over and over again. Twenty times the Bible tells us that the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. At times by Pharaoh himself, at others by God himself. That Pharaoh's heart grew hard in stubborn, rebellious resistance against the command and the word of God. And each plague that came about chipped away at that hard heart, only to firm it once again in its position of hardness. Each time that remorse was even shown by Pharaoh, knowing that what he was doing was wrong and contrary to what he should be doing, instead of repenting and turning and being obedient to God, he resisted God further. And in the last plague of the nine, darkness has shrouded the nation of Egypt to the point that the Egyptians did not leave their homes, to the point that no one left their safety of their own residence. They did not interact with one another. They just stood there. It was the calm before the storm. And yet, the only place of light in the entire nation of Egypt was from this area of Goshen and the slaves of this God that is making such a command and such a demand of the person Pharaoh. But darkness shrouding the nation of Egypt set the stage for the final, the final judgment against Egypt. One wrote this concerning the place that we find ourselves in this morning. 
in our narrative. The people of Egypt have been irritated by the first six plagues. Their land and their possessions have been devastated by the next two. The ninth plague, the three days of darkness, had set the stage for the most dreadful plague of all, when the messenger of death would visit the land. And so we pick it up here in verse 1 of chapter 11. As we are making our way to chapter 20 to really truly understand why God gave his people the Ten Commandments. And to understand the back narrative that led up to that point in chapter 20. We find ourselves this morning in Exodus 11. Nine plagues have occurred. One is left. And the Jewish people find themselves at the dawn of their freedom. Verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Afterwards, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. Speak now in the hearing of the people and let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. Then Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, all the firstborn of the animals shall die. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall there be like it again. But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue against man or beast, that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, all the people who follow you. After that, I will go out. And then he, that is Moses, went out from Pharaoh in great anger. But the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go out of his land. The moment has come. The final determination of God is now at the point of of being executed that will move and break Pharaoh's grip upon the nation of Israel there in servitude in Egypt. But it will require the death of the firstborn amongst all of the Egyptians from Pharaoh's household to the simple handmaiden that is at the millstone. The firstborn of every livestock shall die at the hand of God that they may know that God is sovereignly in control of all things and he has demanded that his people be released. And Pharaoh once again hardened his heart. You may think for a moment that God is acting in a cruel manner to pronounce such a judgment. But let us not forget. For in chapter 4, Pharaoh made it very clear that he, I should say earlier, Pharaoh made it very clear that he was going to exterminate all the Jewish children because he was concerned of their uprising against him. And so God is now only bringing it back upon Pharaoh himself. 
Also, let us understand that God has made it perfectly clear in chapter 4 that Pharaoh would harden his heart to allow God to demonstrate his wonders, to communicate to those who have embraced pagan gods that there is only one true and living God, and it is Jehovah. It is Yahweh. It is the God of the slaves of, of Egypt, the God of Israel. But he also wanted to demonstrate through his great acts his power to his people that they may know the length and the depth and the breadth in which he would go to to see them released from their captivity. And so in the wake of Pharaoh's hardened heart, God moved. For to God Israel was his firstborn. He actually calls Israel that in Exodus 4.23. For Israel is my firstborn. And how dare you touch God's children. That's what he's saying. Bringing Pharaoh to a place of hardness against God, that God may show his wonders in the land of Egypt. One commentator wrote this. Pharaoh and the Egyptian people sinned against a flood of light and insulted God's mercy. The Lord had endured with much long-suffering the rebellion and the arrogance of the king of Egypt as well as his cruel treatment of the Jewish people. God had warned Pharaoh many times, but the man wouldn't submit. Jehovah had publicly humiliated the Egyptian gods and goddesses and proved himself to be the only true and living God, yet the nation would not believe. And so in verse 1, the declaration that there shall be one more plague. One more, this is it. After this, he won't only let you go, he will drive you out of the land. Get out of here. You're bad for me. You're bad for our nation. That We shall not hold you any longer in captivity. Now is the time that the bondages are about to be broken through the death of the firstborn. Think of the plagues to this time. The water turning to blood. The land covered with frogs. The land covered with lice and with flies. Our family would have been out at that moment. You know. Somewhere, somehow, in my job description, as husband and father, I am to kill all crawling things. (laughs) But then it went to the disease of the livestock. It went to the boils that covered human flesh. It went to the hail that destroyed most. And then the locust that destroyed the rest. And then it came to that moment of pause where the darkness just shrouded the nation of Egypt and the people felt the oppressive weight of that darkness. The only light being there in Egypt was found amongst the children of God. What a picture for you and I of today. But Pharaoh hardened his heart. And we demonstrated through each one of these how God was showing himself superior to any of the gods of Egypt. Those gods of Egypt supposedly giving Pharaoh his position of royalty. And that position of royalty demonstrating his favor amongst the gods of Egypt. And God has simply and clearly demonstrated the weakness of Pharaoh. And demonstrated that he is no God at all. And yet Pharaoh's heart turned hardened against God. And one more judgment was needed. In our text then we move to an incredible experience. Where not only the people of Israel will be asked to leave. They will be driven out from Egypt. But before they leave they are to ask their neighbors for gold and silver. Think of that for a moment. Knocking on your neighbor's door after being a slave to them or on your master's door after being a slave to them and said, excuse me, uh, may I have your gold and silver? And them saying, yes. For God gave the people favor in the sight of the people of Egypt. For the people of Egypt were now crushed under the weight of the judgments of God and were now willing to see the people in a favorable light because God has moved them to do so. 
Then we come to Moses himself, who now is great in size and stature. That's what that word great means in the Hebrew. He is actually someone. And the theologians look at it, and I agree with them, that what they're saying is that what Pharaoh was supposed to be, Moses obviously is. Now, I'm not saying that they were worshiping him as a deity, but whatever favor they thought that Pharaoh had from the gods, obviously Moses has found favor in the sight of his God by demonstrating the works in which he has demonstrated. So he has become great. And the gold and the silver was simply payment for services rendered those hundreds of years in captivity and slavery. But then we move to the type of judgment. As God says that about midnight, verse 4, I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and the firstborn of the animals. And the cry shall be great. God deemed it necessary. God in his sovereignty deemed it necessary for this to take place. In his sovereignty, he is judging people for their sin. And he will separate and spare the children of Israel. And we will see how he does that next week. Fascinating foreshadow into the person of Jesus Christ. But judgment has occurred. That the release of the children of Israel is going to require the death of the firstborn. That's interesting, to say the least. Remember the years that the pharaohs had destroyed the nation of Israel's children. And notice that now the children of Israel will be spared. God selecting those for judgment, God selecting those for grace. And that Pharaoh may know that there is a difference. Pharaoh was under the conception, the idea, that he was a god. It had been taught to him from the very first age of learning that Pharaoh could have experienced. It was presumed that the child of Pharaoh would be then a god also, and that child of Pharaoh would be held in the hands of Isis, the goddess of Egypt, and God is now once again showing himself superior to these pagan gods. A moment of soberness is required at this moment to understand what God must do to free his people. It requires the death of his firstborn. Now, I did not misspeak. For you and I to be freed from the bondages of sin and death, it required the death of his firstborn, Jesus Christ. Understand the foreshadowing that is leading up to the coming of the person of Jesus Christ. And this would ensure their release. One commentator wrote, As the firstborn son received special honor and a pharaoh's son, heir to the throne, was even considered, he was even considered a god, so the wailing over such loss of sons would be unprecedented in the land of Egypt. And Moses said here, if you will look with me in verse 8, and at the moment this occurs... All your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And then Moses left in great anger. I read this to you. Why would God bring such calamity on the Egyptians? Well, it must be remembered that God is sovereign over all human affairs. People's prosperity or judgment is not because of God's favoritism or lack of it, but because he desires to accomplish his will on earth. Since he alone is holy, 
He has the right to use and dispose of mankind as he wills. Anything that God does is right because he is God. For the psalmist wrote, but our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. Also one must remember that the Egyptians were polytheistic, worshipping many idols and false gods, refusing to worship the one true God because And because of that, they became his objects of judgment. And in this final judgment, understand that God is working alone. It is not at the hand of Moses that this judgment is being predicated upon the people of Egypt. It is God moving amongst the midst of them that is bringing this judgment. And the response of Pharaoh, once again, is a hardened heart against God. Look at 9 and 10 with me. But the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go out of his land. You and I must wrestle with this, with the aspect of our text, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And this is where it becomes dangerous for maybe some of you sitting here today. What does it mean to harden your heart? It means very clearly. It means to see clear evidence of the hand of God at work and still refuse to accept His word and to submit to His will. It means to resist Him by showing ingratitude and disobedience and not having the fear of the Lord or of His judgments. The hard-hearted people say with Pharaoh, Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice? And that's the real issue here. For when Moses came to Pharaoh initially, Moses said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God, let my people go. In a moment of mockery of God, in the moment of mockery of Moses, Pharaoh stood and said, Thus says Pharaoh, seeing himself as an authority and as a God himself, Who is this God, Moses, that you proclaim to me that I should submit to him? And in that moment of the position of resistance and rebellion, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart begins. Sovereignty by the hand of God and personally by Pharaoh himself. Now, does this mean that it is unfair of God to judge Pharaoh in such a way when it is obvious that at points in our narrative, God hardened the heart of Pharaoh? So Pharaoh then shouldn't be responsible for his lack of ability to respond to God's command. But understand that God was not dealing with a righteous person from the beginning. He was dealing with a wicked person. Understand this, that God was not dealing with a man who hasn't already made personal decisions himself. He had. And one of those decisions was to enslave the people of Israel. And in it, God needed to demonstrate sovereignly who he was, not only for the sake of his people, but also for the sake of the Egyptians that would stand in rebellion and in uh, resistance to the God of Israel. Put it this way, the ten plagues could actually be considered the ten tracks. The ten presentations of the awesomeness of God himself to the people. At what point in any of those particular times of judgment do you not fall on your knees and cry out for mercy? And yet they resist it because their Pharaoh resisted. Remember that the sun, not only when it beats down upon the ice, melts it, but when it beats down upon the clay, it is hardened by it the condition of the individual heart in the light of God, in the light of what he has said and what he has required. 
to the very end of our narrative in, in Exodus 14, we will find that Pharaoh was a proud, unrepented sinner who refused to hear God's word and to do God's will, or even to keep his own promises to the Jewish people. The Lord gave him enough evidence to convince him that the gods of Egypt were false, and that the God of the Hebrews was true, and the living God of all things. Pharaoh sins against the flood of light that he had, and therefore God used him to accomplish his own purposes. And Pharaoh made his own decisions and hardened his own heart against God. Understand that. You and I must be aware of something that I believe may be occurring today in the lives of individuals. We see this hardening of Pharaoh's heart and we know that how is it possible? But yet we see that God hardened his heart to show himself strong. Pharaoh hardened his heart and there's a synergy there. And as a result, God showed himself strong. God demonstrated his powers, etc. But I want to bring you into the New Testament. Because I think that it is imperative to understand that there are many in the same place that the Egyptians were back then today. And we have a warning in Romans chapter 1 that I don't believe is being taken seriously enough today from the pulpits of America. As we see the Egyptians and how they position themselves before God, being polytheistic, embracing many idols and many pagan gods... And also living a life of lewdness. And we know that from the history of the Egyptians. They had a gross moral standard. Living for themselves. And yet we are oblivious to the fact that that is occurring today in the hearts of many people. And yet Paul screams a warning in Romans chapter 1 that many are not heeding today. Again, I must warn you that this is another place within our service this morning that it becomes very dangerous for some of you here today. And depending on how you respond to what you hear will determine how dangerous it actually is. The Egyptians, pagan gods, lewd lifestyles, resisting the one and true God and any knowledge of Him. I ask you to read along with me in your Bibles these words written by Paul as he was describing the society around him there in Rome and the attitude of people's hearts. And I dare you not to find the parallel of people today. Let's read along in verse 18. And we begin with this warning. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may have been known of God is manifested in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, of birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things." We begin with the wrath of God. It is a subject that isn't talked about much today. In fact, it doesn't produce a feel-good service, so it, the topic is often avoided. But it is a dimension of God's character and of His righteousness and of His justice that you and I as believers must understand. That God must deal with all unrighteousness and the way to deal with it is by His wrath. Now understand that He's talking about those who are outside of the person of Jesus Christ here. He describes those people very clearly. 
They have a knowledge of God, but they choose rather than to acknowledge that knowledge and to respond to that knowledge positively, they have chosen to suppress it by further unrighteousness. That knowledge is given to them through general revelation of creation. Us looking into God's created world and to know that there is a God. That it is a testament of His handiwork. That it is a creation of His, etc. Even the stars cry out that hang above us that God exists. And yet they choose to suppress it in unrighteousness. They are without excuse... And as a result, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful, and they became futile or empty-minded thinking people. They professed to be wise, but in actuality they became fools. And the word fools there in the Greek means one who knows what they should do and refuses to do it. That's a fool. One who knows what to do and refuses to do it. Now, the wrath of God will be poured out upon these individuals at the time of their death. They will spend an eternity separated from God in a place called hell, which is a literal place. It is not figurative. It is not an allegorical reference. And they will be required to be there, separated for God, paying for an eternity for their sins that they did not allow Christ to pay for. But he goes on. And we already see the parallels to those in Egypt in these words 18 through 23 of Romans 1. Pagan gods. They took their knowledge of God and began to shore up for themselves idols. We may believe in the United States of America that idols aren't a problem. Well, it's because we're not honest with ourselves. Their little idols were little gods that they formed and created by their own hands. They named them, they shaped them, and so forth. And they worshipped them. Today, our idols come in many, many different forms. Our idols can have a garage. Our idols can have four wheels. Our idols can be the relationship that we are in. Our idols can be a statement that comes once a month telling us how much we have in the bank. We are just not honest with ourselves. We just won't acknowledge that we have allowed other things to lord over us and for us to pursue the worship of them, meaning to pursue a furtherance of those things in our life. We've got to have more, we've got to have better, etc., if it be materialism. But today, uh, idolatry often comes in the form of relationships. I can't tell you how many people have created relationships for themselves that have become idols in their life. Now we want to believe that we are idol free, but that is just a lie. And as a result, idolatry runs rampant here in our nation. Now there's a warning that comes. A warning that I'm so concerned over. Three Times a phrase is used by Paul stating that God gave them over. God gave them up. God gave them over to these things because they choose to exchange something for God. He gives them over to these things. Verse 24. Therefore God gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies amongst themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. He gave them up. This is what you want? Fine. I am giving you up to those things. I'm going to allow you to pursue those things. And it is an act of judgment. Understand that. It is an act of judgment. One writer said it this way. That the hand of God is is like the hand on a boat holding it from the stream, tearing it away from the shore. That's the grace of God. 
What Paul is describing here is not only that hand letting go of the boat and allowing the stream to take it where it will, it is the hand letting go and then him giving it a push in that direction. And you say, how is that feasible? God gave them up for these things because they choose to exchange one thing for another. Instead of worshiping the creator of all things, they have decided to worship the creature. He goes on in verse 26. Listen to this. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature, that is lesbianism. Likewise, men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burn in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves a penalty of their error which is due. Secondly, God gave them up to their own lusts. Are we seeing God giving the people of our nation up to their own lust? Is that why this subject of homosexuality and lesbianism is so prominent? I can't even drive home listening to my sports talk show without engaging in the conversation of homosexuality and lesbianism. As I was driving home, there is a popular football star who has been drafted this year, who is an openly homosexual male. And the Christian Tony Dungy had made some comments that he probably would not have um, drafted that individual because he didn't want all of the, the attention that it would draw. And of course, Tony Dungy was crucified by the media for saying such a thing. And then the commentator went to say something. And it was so provoking to me that I almost pulled my car over to call him. Almost. The commentator went on to say, and he said, doesn't Tony Dungy know that other evangelical Christians have now come to the right conclusion that nowhere in the scriptures does God condemn homosexuality and lesbianism? Oh, wait a minute. It's just amazing. Has God given us up? Has a judgment begun? I leave this for you to consider. I want you to chew on it. Because this is an incredibly dangerous position for a non-believer to be in. Has God given them up? Now, he goes on in verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them once again over to what? A debased mind to do the things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceitfulness, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent and proud, boasters, inventors of evil thing, disobedient to their parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who know the righteous judgments of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death. But not only do they do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. We know. America has been saturated in Christianity. We know that there are things that God finds objectionable and makes it very clear in His Word. The world knows that. And they suppress it. And God then gives them over as they suppress it to a certain degree and to a certain point. He gives them over to a debased mind. Now, I don't know when this occurs in a person's life. You know, their eyes don't roll backwards and it said God gave them up on the other side. We don't know when this occurs, but it can occur. And as Pharaoh's heart was hardened by God that he may show his wonders... And that he may show his signs. Now we see in the New Testament this warning that if we choose to suppress the knowledge of God that we have in unrighteousness, God may give them up. These are non-believers that he is talking about. But I challenge you as Bible students here today to look at what Paul is saying and ask yourself some very important questions this morning. Does this or does this not reflect our society? 
Has God given them up? I don't know. But it's a dangerous position to be in. It's a judicial act, a judicial act where God does this in His sovereignty towards man. And we see this playing out. And not only do those people practice such things, but they applaud those who practice them also. They approve of them, they practice them, etc. Knowing that what they do is wrong. Track down with me now into Romans chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. As Paul then indicts his reader in verse 1, Therefore you are inexcusable, all man, whoever you are, who judge, and whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. But in verse 4, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long suffering? not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. But but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and of revelation and of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds." We look at the story and the account of Pharaoh as being so distant in time past. I bring this to your attention this morning to make it real to you today that the same unrighteousness will be judged by God for those who are not found in Christ Jesus. If you are here today and you do not know the Lord and you are hearing these things and you choose once again to refuse these things, to rebel against these things, to resist these things, the heart is growing ever so hard and you are positioning yourself in a place of judgment before God. That's why it is so dangerous. But what about a believer in Jesus Christ? We know the unbeliever can come to this point where God gives them over, but what about a believer? Paul emphasizes this again about the non-believer in Ephesians 4, 17-19. I'll read it in the ESV. I like the way they render it. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. He's speaking to us as believers. In the futility of their minds. And he talked about why their minds are in that futile state in Romans 1. They are, in, they are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God because of ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So Paul's reiterating that same sentiment that he articulated and expounded upon in Romans 1 there in Ephesians 4, 7-19. That this is the position of those who are not found in Christ before a holy and living God. But what about a believer? Can we harden our heart? Yes, we can. But the consequences are gravely different. Turn with me to our final passage this morning, and that is Hebrews chapter 3, and we'll close in this passage. The writer of the book of Hebrews, and as one scholar said, only God knows who that is. I lean towards Paul himself, but was worried about the new Jewish believers drifting again, once again, away from Christ and therefore finding themselves in a very precarious place. So he asked them not to harden their heart in unbelief. Let me read a passage with you, verse 7 through 19 of chapter 3. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my work forty years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my way. So I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is still called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. 
For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confession steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, it was not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses. Now with whom uh, was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned? whose corpses fell in the wilderness, and whom he did not did he not swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey. So we see that they could not enter because of unbelief. Let me explain to you what he is saying there. For us as believers, we can harden our heart in a different way towards God. It is our unwillingness to believe and to trust God to further and to develop and to fulfill His promises towards us. And as we harden our heart in such a way, again, for a person that would do so, church is one of the most dangerous places for them to be in, where they come and they hear of the promises of God but then choose not to believe those promises. They begin to harden their heart towards God. And it is not God's wrath that will be poured upon those people, but God's chastisement. Because He loves you too much to leave you where He found you. And that God desires that you have all that He has for you. So He'll chasten you as a child, a loving father, chastening and directing His child, that you may then believe And trust in those promises and allow those promises to sustain you through whatever circumstance that you may find yourself faced with in life. For those who have hardened their hearts in this way, here's what I see. See, they know God, but they have too much of God in them to enjoy the world, so they're miserable, and they have too much of the world in them to enjoy God. There's also a degree of what was called biblical carnality within them. They know God, they know of Him, they might have even trusted Him, they believe in Him to a certain degree, but they don't believe Him. They haven't allowed Him to take them further in the depth and the breadth of their relationship with Him. It is like those who came out of Egypt, delivered by the hand of God, coming to the edge of the promised land, and then sending the twelve spies in, ten came out and said, no way no way possible can we conquer those who are in this land. And then two came out and said, it's cake. Literally, that's what they said. It's cake, Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb went in to experience the promised land and were blessed by all that God had for them. But many Christians are like those ten, where they won't trust God. And as a result, they have little joy. They have little hope. They have little peace. They're always tormented in their own hearts. Anxiety seems to rule and to govern them because they won't simply surrender and trust God. Overwhelmed by despair and often overwhelmed by depression because they simply will not cry out to God, God, help me. God, I trust you. God, I believe you. And so they are constantly, constantly, constantly worried about tomorrow. For these individuals, it is not the wrath of God, but the chastening of God that comes upon them so that they may grow into maturity, that they may experience all that God has for them, that they may know that He is their God and that He loves them and that He is able to perform all that He has promised to them. But for the non-believer who hardens his heart against God, it is the wrath of God that waits for them. As one wrote, Believers who doubt God's word and rebel against him do not miss heaven, but they do miss out on the blessings of the inheritance today, and they must suffer the chastening of God. While others continue in their hard steadfastness of their heart, resisting the grace of God, the wrath of God waits for them. I leave you with this quote from C.H. Spurgeon. The hardness of a heart is a great and grievous evil. It exists not only in the outside world, but in many who frequent the courts of the Lord's house. Beneath the robes of religion, many carry a heart of stone. It is more 
than possible to come to baptism and to the sacred supper, to come consistently to the hearing of the word of God, and even as a matter of form to attend to private religious duties and yet still to have an unrenewed heart, a heart within which no spiritual life palpitates and no spiritual feeling exists. Nothing good can come out of a stony heart. It is a barren as a rock. To be unfeeling is to be unfruitful. Prayer without desire, praise without emotion, preaching without earnest. What are all of these? Like the marble images of life, they are cold and dead. Insensibility is a deadly sign. Frequently is the next stage to destruction. Pharaoh's heart was a prophecy that his pride would meet a terrible overthrow. The hammer of vengeance is not far off when, we, when the heart becomes hard and an adamant stone before a living God. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart. The giving over to judgment. The Bible says that after the rapture of the church, God will send into this world a strong delusion that the people may believe the lie. These are all grave warnings. If you are here today and have not responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is one of the most dangerous places for you to be. Because in your resistance, you are continuing that hardening of your heart. It is here at church that the word of God is heard. It is here at a church that God speaks to us through his spirit. Will we choose to resist or to respond? If you are here today and a believer in Jesus Christ, you are in Christ. And the wrath of God has been poured upon him at the time of the cross. But do you believe God? Are you trusting Him to take you to that next step in your walk with Him, to have the faith to trust Him, even against immountable circumstances, circumstances that are completely beyond your personal ability to control or to navigate? Have you hardened your heart? We must be honest and open for, before God because this can be a very dangerous place in certain circumstances for people to dwell. Hearing the word of God and refusing it, resisting it, etc.